Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by Ken Womack and Jason Kruper to discuss their book, All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison, Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Ken is such a brilliant author and is on a real hot streak right now. His two-volume George Martin biography, Solid State, which was a brilliant look at Abbey Road, and in particular, his excellent book on John in 1980, which came out at the end of last year. Jason's podcast, Producing the Beatles, is firmly in the top tier of Beatles podcasts, and long may it continue. All Things Must Pass Away is a fantastic look at George and Eric in 1970, such a key year for both of them. Uh, this book really brings home what a bold and brave statement All Things Must Pass was for George. He was going through such a difficult personal time. Uh, the fact that he produced such a brilliant record was amazing. Eric, of course, was emerging from another breakup of another band, and Layla was yet another reinvention for him, albeit a particularly tortured one. Ken and Jason's book tells the story of both these albums and how they help us to understand George and Eric's long-lasting friendship. Well, Ken Womack, hello. Welcome back to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Uh, sure, good to see you, Joe. Hope things are going well during these troubled and complex times. <laughs> Sort of, sort of. Uh, and also, welcome to Jason Cooper. Hello, welcome to the Beatles, Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Hey, uh, I'm good, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start by talking about the book uh, and the age-old opening question of what inspired you both to tell this story of uh, Eric and of George, uh, and maybe more specifically, why you chose this point in their lives to kind of focus on. I believe it was really an interest in 1970, you know, the way all of these forces come together in one studio in London and end up in another one in Miami. And the interesting kind of historical relationship that the, the, these two very famous albums share, uh, they share several musicians. They share a much lauded and spoiler alert, as we're going to talk about later, perhaps overblown love triangle. And really this, this hyper important moment in the creative lives of these two guys. Ken really talked me into this, honestly. I, <laughs> when, he, when, he, when he first suggested it, I thought, well, I like those albums. But, um, and I, you know, you obviously know this, we know the shared. Uh, musicians, but um, it j it didn't immediately jump out at me. So I actually had to start looking at the material, and then once I did, I thought, "Oh, okay, I see the story here." Um, and then finally, so I threatened him. And yes, <laughs> yes. The first part of the book uh, goes into the kind of early lives of George and of Eric, which I think is a really uh, interesting way to to kind of start. Um, George's childhood is notably kind of calmer than the other three Beatles. Obviously, John and Paul have their uh, well-known tragedies, uh, and Ringo um, has a long line of different health issues. How do you think that childhood kind of affected George's personality? And, and what do you think it was about his kind of his early life, George's early life, that made him fit in with John and Paul? Well, he was confident. He grew up with parents who... And we wish this for everyone, public service announcement, parents who really supported him. And if he had interests as far as they could, they would, you know, support them with resources, but certainly with just good parenting. You know, he grew up confident enough to, to make his own conclusions about things like, as we all know, religion. And I, I see that as a big part. You, Jason? I, I do. And I think the, uh, I think his sort of stable upbringing made him kind of a perfect foil for John and Paul and their sort of dramatic chemistry with each other um, and their own, their own sort of emotion. I mean, John is more known for the emotional ups and downs than Paul, but I think, you know, their chemistry together was probably early on was great for the band, but as time went on, I think it became more volatile. And um, the fact that, that George was kind of an even keel 
balance that out to some extent. I mean, can you imagine somebody else who, who had, you know, kind of a raving ego and George certainly had an ego, but to mix with those two guys. Certainly an interesting combination. The flip side of, of George's early life is Eric's early life, which I have to confess, I, I didn't know a, a whole lot about before I, I read the book and the, the amount of trauma that was in there was quite notable. Um, I mean, I, I was amazed that he managed to make any kind of early success for himself, uh, having gone through what he did. To tell us a little bit about what that childhood was like and how that kind of shaped Eric as an early, as an early kind of rock pop star. He, I mean, he was a wreck, right? I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's the opposite in every way from the Harrison household. He was a bastard child and he knew it. And uh, even though he had you know, very loving relatives, it, you know, when you look back at it and, and, and in his own words, very loving relatives, you know, he was caught up in a small English town and uh, felt like an outcast. You know, that trauma, <laughs> I mean, would continue to impact him forever. You know, you see it in the way he quits one band after another. He almost, he almost has preemptive breakups with relationships with people and in his band structures so that he doesn't get hurt fear of abandonment. Yeah. He's, he's definitely repeating this pattern of disruption that he felt um, in his early life. I mean, not to be armchair psychologist, but it's, it's pretty apparent if you know anything about how we carry these traumas in, from childhood into, into adulthood. So, you know, and, and he's, he can't seem to find a, a stable place for himself. And it's, it's really Manifest, it manifests itself in the in the bands that he joins or, or starts and then leaves. You know, he just can't. Any anytime anything starts to be stable, he looks for an exit route. <laughs> My favorite is Blind Faith. That's the one right where they're playing yeah. huge London festival, and as they're about to play the first note, he's thinking, "I got to get the hell out of this band." <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. George and Eric, they first meet in uh, the mid-60s. Tell us a little bit about that meeting and, more importantly, what was the, the key to their friendship, certainly in those early years? Eric does have relationships with the other three Beatles. Um, his friend, almost instantly, is George. What do you think was the connection between them? I, I love that story because he susses them out pretty quickly. You know, for all of his the character flaws that we just described. He also has a lot of skills that he was probably forced to develop by feeling like an outcast. So he was able to size them up pretty fast. He felt like Paul came on strong, like a salesman. He really was perturbed by John. And, and perhaps it was as Jason just described it, those highs and lows, but something was off as far as he was concerned. He didn't, uh, he was suspicious of him. But it was George who just seemed like a normal guy who wanted to talk about guitars. And that's a language and a place where Eric was comfortable with the vernacular, didn't feel threatened. They started to talk like a couple of gearheads, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's really telling George's uh, characterization of seeing Eric the first time or, or seeing him, you know, that club and saying, you know, he seemed lonely. That was his first impression and thinking, you know, we should invite him to come with us. It was, it was this very kind sort of understanding attitude he had toward him. We think of these rock stars as these, you know, sort of like dramatic figures, but you know, that's a very human response. And I, you know, I really think that's, that's the foundation of it in some ways, like on, on kind of an emotional level. Um, but certainly they, you know, they shared this, this interest in music and they shared this interest in guitars and that can't be understated. The book obviously centers, as you say, around the events of, of 1970. Um, so if you could tell us where we find them at the start of, of 1970, they've both been through an awful lot um, from that first meeting in 64. Where do we find them in, in 1970? Let's start with George, who is staring down the dissolution of the Beatles. I think he's the impression I got is, is that he's uncertain about a solo career. I think he knows it has to happen, 
but he's he's just not ready to embrace that yet. So there's a lot of talk in the first half of the year about how you know the Beatles are going to record together again. They're going to do their solo projects, and then we're going to get back together because the novelty of you know doing our solo projects is going to wear off. And uh, he you know he he says this over and over. And I think you know a cynical reading of that is that you know he's he's doing it for the good of the company for Apple. To me, it just didn't ring that way. To me, it it there may be a little bit of that, but I think some of it's you know I he can't quite accept that this is over yet. And he's also you know working with other musicians. He's working with Doris Troy and Billy Preston on their albums, and you know he's sort of continuing that producer role that he had in '68 and '69. And uh, you know his attitude is that he wants to he wants to build a house band for for Apple recording artists. So you know he this is where he, where he is, and he's sort of he doesn't quite have an idea of what a solo career looks like, and he's maybe a little bit uncertain, doesn't have the firm foundation that uh, he probably wants. And then Eric, as Ken will tell you, yeah, Eric is. Uh in a restless place, which is probably his, his MO uh, as, as far as where he, he operates, but he has like George had this wonderful experience with uh, as being sidemen, right. Of sorts with Blaney and Bonnie and friends. Right. They're both very energized by that experience. Um, And it was probably a saving grace for them. Of course, Eric was available because, you know, he can't stay inside one outfit or another um, he's moved pretty swiftly from what John Mayles, Blues Breakers to Cream to Blind Faith and, and probably considered several other cooperatives during that same period. And so he's, he's in a restless place. And of course, as we know, he's also been harboring uh, and, you know, sorry for all you romantics out there, but a very immature kind of uh, infatuation with Patty Boyd, which frankly, probably several million people were at the same time who, who had seen her on the arms of George. He admitted almost contemporaneously, really, that he was just jealous of George, if nothing else, that he seemed to have a better life. He's moving into a fantastical new estate in, in 1970. He's, uh, you know, he has had a stately career with the Beatles and he seems poised for great things. And so he's getting himself caught up very quickly and probably for most of the time, just in his own head about Patty, you know, was creating all sorts of uh, machinations in his mind as people do uh, with unrequited love, especially of this immature variety. Part of the, the danger of the story that we, we do spend some time talking about is their shared trauma, right? So one of the reasons why she ultimately responds to this uh, is that she too comes from uh, almost a mere imprint, perhaps worse, really, uh, in some ways of, of Clapton's upbringing. You know, she was tossed around by a kind of absentee mother, uh, and all sorts of bewildering, be- bewildering, sorry, uh, familial connections that it's a wonder that she and her siblings survived into adulthood really at all. Um, and so, you know, she too would have feelings of abandonment and, and, and being feeling unwanted. And it was really a, probably a terrible, uh, terrible prescription for a lot of the things that would happen. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, reading, Patty's book, it just, that jumped out at me as, as this really unhappy childhood, you know, abusive stepfather and the way that mixes. I mean, I, I early on talked to Ken about, you know, trauma bonding. These are two people who have, who have unresolved traumas in their childhood and they find each other and they, on some unconscious level, they, they see that in each other. And that's, that's some of the attraction. I mean, obviously these other things are going on, the you know, physical attraction and there's the, the culture they live in and Patty, maybe not feeling that she's getting the attention she needs from George. But I, you know, I think the, the emotional psychological component is very important. And, you know, it, again, not to be a, an armchair psychologist, we do have to consider these things when we're looking at uh, these people's lives. 
I do want to talk a, a little bit about the Delaney and Bonnie thing, because that that is a big thing for both George and Eric. And I do think they they bond a little more on that tour just because it's such a barnstorming thing. You know, there, there's that Philip Norman piece um, where he follows them around and he's in that roadside cafe with them. And it's really just, you know, it's it's in the bus on the road very low rent. It's not, it's not rock star lifestyle. It's, it's uh, very much, you know, hardcore touring band. And I, you know, I think they both love that and, and got something from it. So, you know, there, that's another, the, you know, the, the bonding is something that takes between George and Eric is something that takes place over, over a period of years and develops. And, you know, I think that's another, another component of it. I think it's interesting that um, George always seemed happiest in a band apart from the Beatles. It's weird, you know, he, he obviously he, I think one of the reasons why he, he never toured properly outside of that 74 US tour, which was almost like a traveling circus as much as a, a rock and roll tour. You know, he, he loved being in the Wilburys and, you know, he, he loved obviously this, this tour with Delaney and Bonnie. So I think he, I think he loved being in that, that band environment, but obviously the Beatles, as we know, was not a typical band environment, was it? No. And, you know, it's funny you say that. And, you know, I remember, I don't remember when I read this, but Ringo years later, you know, in the eighties said something about, I love being in a band. And it's, it's interesting to see those two with that attitude of just wanting to be in that sort of communal experience. And John and Paul are very much like, no, uh, you know, we have to be the guys in charge, you know, that's their ego at work. And, just an interesting contrast, you know, mm. again, like the sort of the alpha part of the band and, and you know, the other part of the band um, kind of balances out each other. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about these guys, so Lennon and McCartney by 1963 are being feted in the UK as, you know, the greatest living songwriters. And then you quadruple that in the U S the next year. And meanwhile, George is this kind of, junior member of the band and it's not helped because of course George Martin also supports that structure because the hit makers are called John and Paul and so you know he kind of settles into that place for a long time and uh, his coping skills probably become a superpower for George Harrison I think yeah you know dealing with those kinds of issues and being able to at times not all the time as we know january 10th 1969 <laughs> you know to sublimate <laughs> to sublimate his ego right and uh <laughs> whereas eric is always thinking about abandonment uh and you know how do i get out of this place before i'm kicked out i think er eric's kind of more like paul we could never imagine paul doing a wilburys could we i don't think that would ever have kind of happened that you know Paul's never got with equals like that whereas I think George was much happier in that kind of scenario yeah for sure I mean you see that in in all of Paul's bands he's he's the guy in in charge you know he's the man except the only time he comes close is the Elvis Costello sessions and even then we know that I mean I'm, I imagine that record was supposed to be much more of a collaboration uh, and as we know it, it didn't quite turn out like that right I mean, hey, we demo. love we all love Elvis, but you know yeah. the calculus is pretty clear even in that collaboration. Yeah, he. I mean, he needed a foil, and and uh, those demos hinted a lot more that could have been. But yeah. Anyway, moving away from flowers in the dirt and going back to the matter <laughs> at hand, we should talk about all things must pass itself. The the album, the experience. Um, the the book describes this. I got this kind of expansive and busy kind of sent from the recording sessions and lots of well-known faces, faces that were well-known then, faces that would go on to be better known than they were at the time. Uh, a few things around that. The thing that kind of leapt out for me was this is in big contrast to the first solo records by John and by Paul, both of which are stripped down. You know, Paul doesn't really use anyone and, and John obviously only uses Ringo and Klaus essentially. George goes the opposite and uses a lot of different musicians and a, a lot of different kind of sounds, really. Do you think that was a, a conscious decision by George to kind of go against John and Paul's direction? And was it an enjoyable experience for him to record the record? We heard from Alan Parsons on this, who said that, and you know, Alan's quite fastidious <laughs> about matters. He likes things to be in their place. And for him, those All Things Must Pass sessions really felt like 
to borrow your word from earlier, almost like a circus. I think he said, what, Jason, anybody with a guitar was like welcome to start playing and yeah, you um, hand him hand him a guitar and tell him to join in. Yeah, yeah, and George, you know, Alan had learned really under the tutelage of George Martin, who also liked an orderly studio, uh, and didn't like wasting time and jamming and that sort of thing. I mean, remember the stories about after uh, after they finished Pepper and they've got these long sessions doing it's all too much, and George is just running out of patience with them. So Alan saw this atmosphere and it it didn't seem like it was conducive at first to getting anything done, but then it did. Right. Jason. Right. I, I think this sort of communal attitude about having a, a, you know, this camaraderie is something George saw back in Thanksgiving 68, when he went to go visit Dylan and the band and Woodstock. I mean, he, I think that really, especially after the white album, which is, you know, this long grueling process, he goes and he and he's in this atmosphere where he has these people who are all kind of grooving off each other and and you know that carries on into his his apple productions where he's gathering musicians that he trusts he's you know clapton and klaus Vormann and um and ringo and and using different people and just getting a sense of you know how they can play together and you know in his like i said in his interview in uh, early 70 where he's talking about having an apple house band I really think that, you know, that sort of carries on in into the All Things Must Pass sessions where he's now over the past year or so, he's gathered all these people together that he's worked with and he wants to continue that in his own session. So it's it's a natural progression, I think, from, you know, that experience in, in Woodstock with Dylan Band and, and realizing like, I don't want to be like it was in the Beatles. I want to be able to include lots of other people. And, you know, you see that play out in different aspects of his solo career as the seventies carry on. And like you said, that, that tour in 74 is very much like that. You know, it, it, it does care. It takes the kind of Delaney Bonnie and thing and, and has the circus atmosphere to it. All things must pass is a little more controlled overall, even though there are some sessions, Klaus suggested this to me that there'd be some sessions that are a little, little bit, too raucous, too noisy, too many people. George would then decide to thin things out. And you, you see that play out in the way the sessions are, are arranged. Like, you know, you start off with this sort of big group of people. You have a dozen people in the studio and Spectre and these, you know, big arrangements. And then George kind of calms it down for these acoustic numbers. And then, and then Derek and the Dominoes come in and it's just, you know, it's a different vibe completely. It's, it's that, you know, guitar band jamming vibe. So I don't I don't think he was conscious of what John or Paul were doing. He probably wasn't even aware. But I think he knew what he wanted, you know, and it was natural for him. This was the direction he was going. So in contrast to that, we should also talk about the record that Eric um, undertakes in a wholly different scenario, which obviously you can you can tell us about. I mean, he, he'd been in groups, as you say, for the past sort of 10 years and again, he goes under this Derek and the Dominoes kind of moniker. Why do you think he didn't just want to make a solo record? You know, it would sort of make sense, maybe, having left all these groups to just try and strike out entirely on his own. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the record itself and why you think he chose to, to kind of go down the direction of not calling it Eric Clapton. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we hinted this in the book, Jason can should correct me, but part of it was this weird feeling that his solo record hadn't been a success. Do you recall that? Yeah. I mean, it hadn't been released yet, but I think he, he had the sense that it was a Delaney and Bonnie record as much as anything else, because there was something, a weird kind of, and maybe this just typifies his thinking, (laughs) but there was a weird kind of dissatisfaction with it. It was like a pre dissatisfaction in the same way that he pre in his mind begins to break up these bands before they've even had a chance to really go out and soar. And in that case, when you read his comments about that record, you'd think it was the worst thing on earth. Um, You know, and I actually had to go back while we were working on this and play it again, just to make sure I I really did like it, which if you're listening, Eric, I do (laughs) give it another shot. Come on. Good record. It is. It's a good, it's a great record, but I think somewhere in there, his ego's feeding him in some ways. 
And, and and actually, Jason speaks really fluently to how that band comes together because there were a couple of instances where history turns right on a dime. Right. And we, I, I was talking to Matt Hurwitz about this, who's done a big piece on on all things must pass for sound and vision. We talked a lot about this last week because he was finalizing things and he kind of wanted to bounce ideas off of me. They had uh, wanted Jim Keltner to be the drummer in the band. And he was still recording with Gabor Zabo, who is a jazz guitarist in LA. And he said, you know, as soon as I'm finished with this project, I'll, I'll come over. And even up to the week before the June 14th, 14th gig, where they're actually named Derek and the dominoes, he's listed in the newspaper advertisements as the drummer in the band. They list, you know, all the members of the band and he's in there. So it's, it's literally within days of the gig and he's listed. And what changes is that Jim Gordon shows up in London uh, around June 10th and they realize they're not going to get Kelter in time and they need a drummer and he's in. And they knew him from Delaney and Bonnie, obviously, and probably aware of his volatile personality. So there may have been some hesitance, but they, you know, let him in and then he's in, you know, for the rest of the time. It's very interesting. And, you know, this is a point that is, I know is going to come up as we talk more about this uh, in the coming months is, is, uh, you know, George had been recording for about two weeks already and uh, Gordon, you know, didn't show up until the 10th. So this idea of Derek and the dominoes kind of being the house band for all things throughout the entire sessions isn't quite true you know george and bobby whitlock are there but jim gordon the sort of the final piece of the puzzle doesn't show up until the 10th or so so i i think we wandered off with the (laughs) it's an important point because jim gordon is going to impact the state of affairs in a lot of signal ways the piano exit that he purloined uh for layla or even the dynamic on the tour, not that <laughs> Eric was going to break up that band because that's what he does. Right. Sure. sure. But, um, but, you know, Jim was, had some toxic behavior at times. Well, um, no, yeah. The, the mad dogs and Englishman tour uh, in spring of 1970, he hit Rita Coolidge in front of a bunch of people, like violently, unexpectedly, apparently unprovoked. I'm sure there were other instances. His incarceration uh, yeah. later for, homicide also yeah Yeah. uh you know speaks to that but but in in any event uh i guess it would be matricide right right he's he's not jim keltner uh in terms of personality and you know it has an undoubtable uh, effect on on the band's chemistry right something that i had no idea about until I, i read the book was the appearance of Dwayne Allman. Um, in this story, uh, which is a really fascinating little pocket of information. Tell us a little bit about about him and about how he fits into this part of the book. Well, it's wild, isn't it? The way they, they go see the Allman Brothers show and they <laughs> they get lawn chairs. It's a very Southern thing, isn't it, Jason? They kind of get lawn chairs and they sneak up in front of the stage and just, and they watch Dwayne play. And, uh, you know, they're mesmerized by him. And it's, I mean, it's very nonchalant how he comes and jams. And the next thing you know, he's in the group. He's on loan from the Allman Brothers. And, uh, you know, there he is with his, his lap steel guitar. And suddenly we have, you know, in addition to the late energy of Jim Gordon, you've got this whole, actually the inclusion of an entirely different genre by but by virtue of a shared love of the blues that you know southern rock is now infiltrating uh this record it's it's quite fabulous and it all happens in such a short amount of time there's a a fellow who worked for mal evans kevin harrington uh who was the essentially mal needed help with apple in the late 60s and his role and they brought kevin on board kevin works on the rooftop kevin's working on all things must pass but for years, he's heard from Mal and by extension, Neil Aspinall about how great it would be to go on tour with a rock band. And he wants to have that experience as a young guy. He's got all that red hair. You know, you've got to you got to get out there apropos of nothing. Uh, <laughs> you've got to get out there and experience it for yourself. 
And he signed on with this band and, uh, you know, left the All Things Must Pass sessions. And immediately they announced that they were going to Miami and they had no budget money for him. And they get, but, but no sooner than they go to Miami, they're back, you know, and now they're going to go on tour. And uh, Kevin said it was that way with Derek and the Dominoes. It was very impromptu. They often didn't set up the dates very far in advance. You know, Robert Stigwood was dealing with the confusion over, over the band, you know, as, uh, and Jason and I have actually now seen one uh, in the flesh, excitingly enough. They printed up Derek is Eric buttons just so that people could figure out what the hell was going on, that this was actually, you know, Clapton is God in front of you and Derek and the Dominoes. And, uh, but no sooner had they done that than it all petered out, of course, uh, at the end of that last tour. It's, a, it's right. just such a strange historical uh, anecdote. And it's the opposite of, you know, the craftsmanship uh, that went into all things must pass. Hiding behind the whole Derek and the Domino's name. Uh, that's really curious because I think he's, you know, he's had such a, what he characterizes as a terrible time with blind faith and this whole, you know, super group idea. And he seems, he seems really weary of, the Clapton is God thing, the whole front man thing, the whole, you know, put the spotlight on Eric that he wants to recede into the background. He wants to be anonymous and totally ignoring the fact that he's the name draw and he's why people are going to show up his name. Um, and that's where the money is. It's, it's this bizarre kind of self-defeating, you know, think of if, if Layla had come out under Eric Clapton's name, you know, the commercial prospects would have been much, much better than they were in terms of, of the chemistry of that band. I mean, that it is, it's this, it's this mercurial thing that happens and it's gone and, and they just happen to capture it on tape as opposed to all things must pass, which is this long, very intensive, very labored, very carefully, you know, put together album, uh, which takes five, six months to, you know, to get right. This is what, two weeks, you know, just, just boom, done. Now we're on tour. Mm. Now we're, now we're breaking up. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's lightning in a bottle. And, you know, it's interesting how the two albums then switch uh, in terms of, you know, one sells really well, obviously Harrison's in fact they're hearing it on tour in America. <laughs> Uh, Derek and the Dominoes, and they're like, hey, we played on that one that's getting airplay. And their album, you know, had a a more lowly showing. And of course, now it's lauded in ways that tend to exceed all things must pass. I'm not sure correctly, but they, it tends to. So going back to all things must pass, just a few kind of other other questions around that. Something that um, I went back to listen to it again, having read the book, and I held the record in my hand. And the cover really i kind of looked at the cover in a way that i hadn't done before i read your book um i mean tell us a little bit about the the story of the cover and maybe the idea and the essence around it i mean it's such a it's quite a, a kind of dour image really it's not entirely reflective of elements of the of the music that we find on on the record um and it's yeah it, i mean it's it's gray it's it's quite sparse what would, do you think was george's thinking around it well, you know, you, you, I, we didn't answer your question before about, you know, was this a happy experience for George? I think on some level, making the album was a happy experience and that he's working with these musicians and he's, he's having, a, he's learning that they like his songs, that he's, he had trouble communicating all this stuff to the Beatles, depending on the song. And here he has people who are sympathetic and responsive. And Alan, Alan White, you know, said, about all things must pass. Like when you have a great song like that, it's just easy. And mm -hmm. the, you know, the Beatles famously had, you know, could not get together a good, you know, solid arrangement of that where they really felt it. And, um, you know, so, so he was having a good experience on that level, but he's, you know, he's also dealing with the breakup of the Beatles. His mother is dying toward the sort of end more, more of the post-production he's dealing with Phil Spector, who's begun drinking and, um, so he's got a lot on his on his plate and he you know he later described that period as a difficult time you know it was a, it was a bad bad scene for him. So I think 
on an emotional level, he and you know he's also dealing with maybe not consciously, but he's he and Patty are breaking up. Um, there's a some sort of separation that's been going on between them for at least a year that they maybe can't articulate at this point. You know, some of that is a manifestation of that. And I don't, you know, George didn't have a filter. So I think if he was feeling sad, he was feeling, you know, kind of gray, he was going to reflect that in, in the cover. They, I mean, the, the gnomes are a very whimsical, you know, thing he talked about. We mentioned this in the book, how he, he mentioned that, you know, it's kind of like John Paul, George and Ringo. And, you know, he's sitting there among them almost. It, it's odd. Cause it's like, he's got the Beatles around him and they're, carved in stone and here he is just almost almost looks like he's carved in stone himself uh, and john lennon uh you know famously uh, didn't like the cover he called him an asthmatic leon russell uh <laughs> on the cover that's pretty unsympathetic so no i mean i think it i think it it must reflect some aspect of how he felt about all this you know and it, it's a very dramatic cover i mean really powerful one of the one of the great covers of the early 70s mm. for sure mm. as is layla as is layla yeah you know which comes about because uh the dominoes are touring they're going to a festival in somewhere in france and uh they have a place to stay uh on on this uh, very regal fellow's estate and uh anyway the, the festival ends with uh some kind of disagreement with the the small town where it was being held and a curfew. And you know, that old story, Joe. And <laughs> anyway, um, they go back to the estate. They're all, you know, quite pissed off and getting pissed uh, in the British way. Mm. And uh, they begin to have a massive egg fight uh, in the kitchen at this very regal estate. And of course, Kevin Harrington's looking around thinking, how did I get into this? How did this happen? You know, <laughs> anyway, um, they stayed at this estate and that's where Clapton famously found that painting and uh, which didn't thankfully get any egg on it. What do you think about the, the third, I suppose you, I would hesitate to say bonus record the the Apple jam. I mean that I don't know how many, it's funny. I, I asked my, I spoke to my dad this morning in pre, who was uh, 22 when this record came out and he I asked him for his memories of it. And he bought it obviously around the release and uh, he said, oh, great record. I think I only played that Apple Jam album the once, um, right. which I don't, I don't, I dare say he wouldn't be alone in, in doing that. What do you think was the thinking behind adding that as part of the package? And do you think that there's a huge, I mean, is, is it something that's ripe for rediscovery from people? I think George's attitude was one of just expansiveness and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the reviews says, you know, at some point somebody just liked the idea of releasing a three record set, you know, which I can't really argue with. I mean, that, that does seem to be what George's attitude was. He's like, sure, I can do it, whatever. It's my record, you know? And he listened to those jams and he thought they were cool. And I, you know, funny, I hardly ever listened to that myself. I obviously had to listen because of this book and Last year I was on a road trip last summer and I had put the entire album on my, you know, my phone to listen to in the car. And I'd forgotten that I'd put the jams on. So hear me Lord ends and I'm going, okay, well that was great. And then out of the blue comes in and I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. What's this? What's this? And I had this surprise. Is this like late at night I'm driving and I had this, it was like soundtrack music. It sounded like I'd I'd stumbled across the soundtrack for some late sixties, early seventies sort of artsy European film, and it rises and falls. You can hear the interplay with the musicians; they're really listening and kind of vibing off each other. And that was the first time I really appreciated that that jam. It was just kind of a revelation. I thought, "Wow, what's this?" Jason's just described are the ideal conditions for listening to that third record. So if you're, yeah. if you're hearing this Harrison estate, you know, you need to work. First of all, you need to work with Jason closely on this and help learn how to package that Apple jam uh, segment properly. And that ideally you should outfit Jason with four pewter gnomes or plastic gnomes that could sit on the passenger seat as he drives through the night uh, enjoying the perfect chemistry for, for loving that side. 
I'll, I'll, I'll make a video for YouTube, which they'll, you know, flag <laughs> and take down, but um, you know, <laughs> j- just a driving video of, of that jam driving through the night. It'll be great. You and those gnomes. <laughs> stay, stay tuned. Plastic Nomo band. <laughs> so let's kind of draw towards the, the end of our conversation. I'm really intrigued to hear what you both feel about and it's a slightly kind of tired word, but I'll use it anyway, the legacy of these two records. As you um, alluded to earlier, All Things Must Pass, despite this recent reissue, it's slightly been, not dismissed, but its reputation has slightly uh, diminished, uh, maybe in comparison to the record that came after it, um, that the reputation has certainly increased. Um, first of all, do you think that's fair? And second of all, yeah, where do you think these records kind of sit now? I mean, I there was a period where All Things Must Pass was was kind of overblown, overproduced. Those are the words that get thrown around, you know, with the, with this album so much. You know, I think it's much better appreciated now than it was maybe 25 years ago. And, mm. you know, you, every article I see, it's, you know, it's one of the best, if not the best, uh, Beatles solo albums, you know, that, that seems to be the consensus among a lot of writers and um, a lot of fans from what I'm seeing, obviously you haven't done a, uh, a serious survey of this, but that's, that's what I picked up just from talking to people over the years and, and what I've read. I think this new, this new remix is going to be very interesting um, just in the way it sounds, because the, the idea of the specter overproduction kind of being stripped away and clarified it's not not really stripped away from what i understand but it's been made clearer in the in the new mixes um i don't know i think i wonder how people are going to respond to that but I, I mean i i think you know it's very well very well appreciated now i still walk into stores and hear my sweet lord play and it's this kind of you know last time it happened it was this kind of magical moment like wow listen to that Obviously, you know, I have, I've had my head in it for a year, so it's a different experience, but it is, it is, it is a very, you know, cool thing. Um, that's just on a, a personal level. I would completely agree. I think it towers, maybe not towers, but I think for a long time, we've understood it to be perhaps the best Beatles solo album. I mean, it, it, it is a young man's album, right? He's a very young man when he makes it. Yeah. Um, 20, let's keep 27, it 27 years yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a young guy and it's, so it is a big record, you know, it's the kind a young guy would include the Apple jam disc, right? It is a, it is a young man's record, but it's that brashness, including Phil, right? Let's give him a break. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like he yeah. should have given so many other people a break, you know, but it's uh, it's a young man's record. It's big, it's bold, it's brash. I mean, he wouldn't be able to make that later, you know, just as Paul wouldn't be able to make Ram. Uh, except in 1971, right? So, uh, you know, you see a lot of their best work as solo artists closer to the the breakup because they're still riding that special energy they had. Uh, you know, John with um, Plastic Ono Band and Imagine, George with this record and Living in the Material World, uh, Ringo coming up on the Ringo album, that tour de force, you know? <laughs> so it, it, to me, it, it's, it's aged very well. And I imagine, um, I think people are going to like the, the remixes a lot. Um, I mean, we already love all things must pass, for example, you know, Layla, I think has had the reverse effect. It's always been lauded by the, the critical rock press, you know, Rolling Stone, for example, but uh, you know, outside of several of the pieces, which are quite good, you know, some of it's not in tune. Uh, these are guys who were very seriously abusing substances uh, during um, during the, the very short making of this record. It is by no means a perfect performance. Um, you know, you can even find a few moments where we're not quite in tune, even on the title track of Layla. So, you know, so that stuff matters uh, in the long run when people come to these albums as they will decades on many decades on even a century on perhaps and they want to encounter the listening experience my money's going to be on uh, that they're going to like all things must pass just slightly better than than layla which has gotten a lot of credit for being important and probably also for this not as sexy as we like to think 
romantic triangle. Right. And I, I mean, just in terms of Beatles solo albums, I think Plastic Ono Band in, in my early 20s was such a meaningful, you know, powerful record to me. And it's something I still respect, but I don't listen to it that often. I listen, I've listened to all, even before this book, I would listen to All Things Must Pass on a regular basis. It was just, I would get caught up in the spirit of this this album and and the production and the songs are such great songs. I, I think, you know, George and Eric both had something to kind of get off their chest with these records to much different effect and, you know, to much different, you know, direction where they went after this. But that particular moment, they needed to express these things. And I, you know, I think each in their own way, they're very, you know, they're very personal records. And, and that comes through even now, the more personal performances on Layla still stand out. So, in, I mean, in terms of legacy, who knows? I mean, how do you really tell that? Like, where is this mm. going to be in another 50 years? You know, um, mm. you know, we're still talking about them and, and we're still listening. And, you know, Layla is just it, the song itself is just such a, a huge grand statement. Do you think that um, all things must pass? weighed heavy a little bit on George going into his solo career obviously it was a huge critical and commercial success at the time uh, one that he never kind of I think it's safe to say he never quite recaptured maybe cloud nine I suppose you could say um, but that's a record that's not looked back on now with a huge amount of fondness certainly you know we're near the fondness of all these past do you think that the success of of this record slightly weighed on George and affected his kind of solo career I guess it may uh, have, but you know what, you, to be fair, you know, there are a lot of ancillary things going on in George's life. They, he is breaking up with his wife. He does go back on many of the principles that he had so deeply ascribed to in the late 60s about swearing off drugs and over imbibing alcohol and that sort of thing. He gets in a lot of trouble, personally, Ringo's wife. It gets pretty rough there for a while, going out to L.A. Uh, on those long jaunts and I guess, what, 72, 73. All, he's, he's putting on a lot of road miles really fast that we know impact your ability to be creative and work at that high level. You know, he was, I, I think, from what we've read in the, the Harrison biographies uh, and been able to glean from other sources, he was really in a great spot. No, absolutely. I think um, it was a perfect moment for this. You know, he, he had gathered the people around him and, and to be able to do this. And he had the songs and the Beatles were breaking up and he, you know, and, and in terms of the Beatles solo records, I think John and Paul and, and George were all exhaling in a certain way. They're, you know, they're asserting their, their personalities. They're asserting their independence with these records. And that's one reason why they're so powerful is that, you know, they, they have something that they really want to say. Um, and even McCartney and it's kind of slight way is charming and homemade. And uh, there, you know, there are some good songs on it. He, uh, I think he, you know, he's distracted by other pursuits. He's, he's kind of spinning out of control in the early to mid seventies, you know, 74. He really just, he overdoes it. You know, he's, he stressed himself out. He's, you know, loses his voice. So, you know, and he, you know, he becomes more interested in tending to his estate, which becomes this huge undertaking in order to restore it and, 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 keep it going and you know interested in races race car driving um it's it, he seems to be just dabbling in a lot of different things and and you know once he's done all things must pass and once he's done concert for bangladesh and he's done the tour in 74 it's just like he's expended all this energy and maybe he doesn't i i just get the sense that he doesn't see the really the need to do that much anymore mm. you know he's he's kind of done it and what's the reason to kind of pick this up and do it again? My final question really is uh, just about the, I suppose we, we should conclude with George. Um, what do we know about what, what George kind of felt about this album through the years? Obviously we know he, he was, he was heavily involved in the, the 2000 reissue. So we know that he, uh, you know, of course he, he did re-record uh, some vocals and some tracks for that. How do you think he felt about the record over the, you know, the, the remaining part of his life? You know, you have to be careful with that a little bit in that uh, 
while John and, and uh, would especially say things like, you know, I'm not really fond of looking back. He was great at looking back. Right. And, and you know, in that that last great spate of interviews, you get him to look back on a lot of stuff uh, with great energy and esteem. George really didn't like to go rehash things. You know, as we all know, he wouldn't have been on the anthology. The anthology wouldn't have been made, frankly, if he didn't need the, the paycheck uh, to upkeep that, that uh, state that Jason just described. You know, it had become kind of a, a proverbial white elephant, you know, that he was carrying around, loved it, but was carrying it around. You know, his maintaining something like that is, is tough for barons, much less ex-Beatles. So I don't know that we've got that much commentary other than his sort of sometimes perfunctory descriptions in I, Me, Mine of some of the songs, which are valuable. Right. Jason, but did you ever see any nostalgia in your work? Not nostalgia, really. I mean, he talks, you know, about about wanting to remix uh, the album and kind of strip off all the production when when he's going through everything in, in 1999 and 2000. But you know he ends up not doing it, and that's that's really about it. He you know he he talks about how he likes certain performances or he likes certain things about it, but yeah, it doesn't really go into any great detail. He's very he's very non sentimental about all this, um, and you know maybe some of it is because of that lingering sense of of what a bad personal time it was for him. I mean, all things must pass is a is is not just the name of the song. It's you know the Beatles are passing his mother is passing his relationship with patty is passing it may have been just that experience may have been a much darker period for him than we realize as you know as listeners mm. so he's not necessarily going to look back fondly i mean i think there are certainly some things about that that he must have he must have had a good feeling about he did talk about you know having having those musicians in the studio and having them respond to the song so i think that was a a good thing for him he was not, I mean, John, for all of his tough bravado was a very sentimental guy, you know, and George really kind of had a hard edge to him. He's more contented to talk about, you know, spirituality or Eastern music. It's been a really interesting hour or so talking to you both. The, the, the one credit I must say to the book is that, as I said, I, when I finished reading it, I played the records again which uh, took me to um, some really good and positive places. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, if that was... Well, we love to hear that, Joe, because that's the number one, that's the best kind of critical remark we could ever receive, because if we inspire somebody to hear the songs in the moment when they're, they're reading or, and, or to do what you did, that's, that's the best thing music criticism can ever do. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. I'm glad to hear that. It's a really good place to end. So uh, it'll... End by saying, Ken and Jason, thank you for your time. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thanks.